You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. I promise I'm not making it up. Again, there's actually meaningful preseason football tonight. I swear, I know we always tell you the meaning the, the preseason has nothing to it, but tonight the Patriots are going to show us just exactly what they're trying to get done on offense, and we cannot wait to see it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin hanging out with you, ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. Shout out to our buddy Sarah Spain, whose birthday was yesterday and is now on a much-deserved vacation. And Courtney, shout out for you for deciding that you want to spend a Friday night hanging out with this guy. I don't understand it, but I am uh, honored that we get to spend the next couple hours talking about the Patriots and, frankly, Uh, where things are either going to go very right or very wrong because all we've been talking about is drama with New England. Do they have an offensive game plan? We know that they're mixing things up when it comes to coordinators. Everybody seems to trust Bill Belichick has a vision, but what you really have when you strip it down to me is a second-year quarterback that lost his offensive mastermind in Josh McDaniels that now has to figure out who he's going to be in the second year of his career, navigate all of these waters while we're watching a New England team that on paper is clearly not the favorite in their division. I think there's a lot of pressure on the Patriots to come out and look competent tonight. Who's calling plays, Fitz? That's just what I want to know, and I want to know it from the second he steps onto the field. And how involved is Bill Belichick in this offense? Because we didn't get that answer from the Thursday night preseason game against the Giants last week, and Bill told us that we don't need to worry about any of those things just yet, that they would make a decision on play caller when he deemed it necessary. Well, Mac Jones didn't play last week. We expect to see him play tonight, but in his plays, Bailey Zappi did not look very good whatsoever. Whatsoever, the backup quarterback that the New England Patriots have. I am very concerned about the state of this Patriots offense. I know that we've talked about it all week long, that maybe he, maybe things are taking a step back when Josh McDaniels is not there and Matt Patricia is calling plays mixed in with a little bit of Joe Judge. I don't like the combination. And I remember back in the spring, When we were talking to Mike Reese, we were talking to Greg Bedard, we were talking to all the people who were around the Patriots every single day. The thought in my head was that Bill Belichick already knows who's calling plays. He's just having fun with us for the next couple months. He's going to toy this in front of us because he actually likes when people get to ask him a question that he pretends he doesn't want to answer and gets to act all gruff and, you know, we'll tell you when we'll tell you. He didn't actually have a plan that I thought he was going to come through with last week in having two different voices in the headset of the quarterback. And tonight, when we see what Mac Jones looks like, however long he and the starters end up playing, we'll actually get to see if Bill's plan, so far as it is right now, of having two different voices try to duel it out to see who's going to be calling plays week one, if that actually works with the guy that's going to be under center in week one. There has to be collateral I don't want to say damage, but consequence. We'll say it that way. Collateral consequence to change when you look around any team. And what's happening in my mind right here, now I'll I'll equate this a little bit to Clemson football last year. DJ Uyunglele was supposed to be a great college quarterback and their offense was supposed to be spectacular. It wasn't. And then a lot of smart minds around college football were saying, hey, look at what Trevor Lawrence has been masking or disguising for years because he's such a good quarterback. It didn't matter that maybe the play calling wasn't as good. Maybe the offense wasn't as good. You lose him. Now you see the consequence of it. Well, we've seen the consequence in offensive productivity in general with Tom Brady no longer there. We 
expected that. But Mac Jones did not have an unsuccessful rookie year. The problem for me is you can't tell me that Josh McDaniels is supposed to be this wonderkin that everybody wants. Like Everybody wants him to come in and be the coach of their team. Yes, he's the coach of my team now. I understand that. But everybody looks at his brilliance. You take him away and you don't replace him at all. Like, it's not hard for me to just look at the body of work now and say, okay, that's going to be a problem. And I, I equate a lot of uh, my sports life right now to uh, the, po- the there's a podcast called The Prosecutors. I don't know if you're into true crime, Courtney, but okay. The, the Prosecutors is like, it's two prosecutors, and they look at famous cases, and all they do is take just the evidence. They take no emotion to it, no, you know, but what about this, what about this? They only follow the evidence as prosecutors would, and from the evidence, they try and tell you how it went down, why it went down, and what they would do if they were prosecuting the case, and then what they think, right? So it's a very logic-driven approach. If I take that same approach to the Patriots, and I say, okay, well, you have a rookie quarterback that might be okay, but you don't know what the weapons are around him. You don't have an offensive play caller that you particularly like, and you're in a division that has teams that are substantially more talented on paper and maybe even in the coaching staff there. I, If I just look at that evidence, it means the Patriots are going to struggle this year. The only yeah but is but Belichick. And so what everybody does is they just but they put the perceived bias of Belichick is going to fix everything on top of it, I can't make that leap. Like I, I, I know that Belichick is is a legendary coach, and I take nothing away from that. But that doesn't mean the Patriots aren't going to struggle this year. That to me, there's too many other things that are real complications. Yeah, and I think that the time might be running out on Bill Belichick to continue getting the benefit of the doubt for being Bill Belichick. And to your point about the coaching staff. It almost felt like he was trying to outsmart everybody else and get a little too cute by not naming an official offensive coordinator for not hiring Josh McDaniel's replacement. And I know that what he likes to do is find people within the system, the Patriot way, people who came up under him, which is why he brought Matt Patricia back, which is why the second that Joe Judge gets fired in New York, he ends up back in New England because where did he come from? He came from New England when he got hired by the Giants a couple years ago. So the arrogance almost in a way that Bill Belichick thinks, oh, you know, these guys came up under my system. Doesn't matter if they've been calling defensive plays. Doesn't matter if they were, you know, special teams gurus. If I, if I teach them how to do this, they can call offensive plays and be successful with it instead of going out and hiring somebody whose job has been to call offensive plays, bringing somebody in from the outside because those people from the outside haven't already come up through the Patriot way. That, to me, was where I struggle, and it's almost that stubbornness of Bill Belichick in a way that could end up being his downfall here because we're listening to all the rhetoric around this team is that the offense looks like it's taken a step back. Mac Jones, you know, in his second year, it's such a pivotal year. doesn't look like he is rising to the expectation at least most people have of him. How much of that boils down to the decisions that are being made by the head coach to put the quarterback in a spot where he's dealing with multiple voices in his headset from from the booth or from the sideline wherever they're calling plays it just sometimes you got to ask yourselves like it's the leash running out on on Bill Belichick being able to outsmart everybody else and to do things his way and us just giving him a pass for doing it because he's Bill Belichick she's Courtney Cronin I'm Jason Fitz and look I, I think Courtney at some point too we can't speak out of both sides of our mouths as a sports community when it comes to certain coaching continuity things and when you talk about players that are in the an offense for a second or third year so many writers spend the offseason talking about well there's there's more comfort 
They know the play calling. They know the offense better. We talk about the development from rookies to second year. So often you see a big leap in year two because instead of preparing for draft and then being ushered into life as a professional, now they're comfortable in a system and they're able to continue to learn and grow. You've taken away all of those comforts, all of those creature comforts that matter by creating a system that may or may not have an offensive play caller with any sort of continuity that we may be, you know, if guys are still essentially auditioning for the job, uh, you know, at some point you got to look at it and say, how does this help everybody else? Because we can't sit here and say continuity matters and then say lack of continuity doesn't matter. That's the amount of stacking for Bill Belichick we're doing of yeah, buts. I think at some point, if this team, the other part of it, obviously, is their expectations, right? Like winning 10 games for the Patriots is not what Bill Belichick is here for. He's he's held to a standard of Super Bowls, love it or hate it. And that continuity aspect, that's what the Patriot way, what we've been bred to believe, that's what we think it is. And yet now we're starting to see that fray a little bit and that Bill Belichick's trying to, you know, plug holes that have, that have you know, broken open within the Patriot way by saying, all right, we're going to still try to do it our way, but with a completely different set of tools. You have a young quarterback who, I mean, like it or not, these five quarterbacks that were taken in the first round in 2021 are going to be linked to, together for the rest of their careers. And we're going to be judging them based on what every other quarterback first rounder does uh, from here on out this season. For Mac Jones, we haven't seen him play in the preseason. Like I could very well be eating my words in a couple hours after this Patriots preseason game. Granted, it is a preseason game. I'm not going to go all in on that. But if Bill in his decisions end up stunting the growth of this quarterback, I feel like we're going to be looking at the head coach of the Patriots a lot differently and almost judging kind of his success differently now because it will have weighed so much heavier on who he had previously playing at quarterback, if that makes sense. It feels like some of the decisions that he's making right now that could be to the detriment of the Patriots could end up actually justifying that claim. It's going to be wild, and I'm out on the Patriots completely this year. I might change my tune by the end of the show. AFC's That's the glory too tough. I'm with you. Yeah, 100%. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. We'll keep breaking down the game. We'll keep you updated on what that offense looks like when they get on the field. But coming up, a big season in the Big Easy. We'll tell you about it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah. You're listening to the Spain and Fitz Podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz hanging out with Courtney Cronin in tonight for Sarah Spain. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, and we said we'd keep you updated. Well, it was a quick three and out for the offense of the Patriots. Uh, an, an ugly late behind the receiver pass by Mac Jones, followed by a sack. Now, it's just a preseason, so we'll see where it goes, uh, but that at least lets you know how things have started. In the meantime, there is another big preseason game tonight between the Saints and the Packers, two teams that are trying to figure a lot of things out going into the regular season. So to give us some expertise, we're joined now by Catherine Terrell, ESPN NFL Saints reporter. Catherine, thanks so much for the time. Uh, let's start with the, the basics of tonight. What what are you looking for in tonight's game that you think Saints fans can actually take as a for, uh, something to move forward with into the regular season? Well, I think the big thing tonight is the test of their offensive line depth. Uh, over the course of this week, they've had a lot of injuries to their offensive line. Uh, the man projected to be their starting left tackle, James Hurst, left with a foot injury earlier this week. Um, rookie Trevor Penning briefly left his injury, but I think he's okay. Ryan Ranchek isn't playing in this game um, because they've kind of been resting him a lot this summer. And then most of their backups 
all of a sudden have been placed on IR this week. So I've seen fans really nervous about what is going to happen at the tackle position if the first two, three, four guys are hurt, which is a pretty valid concern. So that's something big. And then another thing is who plays a wide receiver? I don't think Michael Thomas is going to play tonight. That's the guy everyone wants to see. Maybe we don't see him until next week. Maybe we don't see him at all in the preseason. So really, how do the other wide receivers step up? And then how does the first-team defense play? How can how concerned should Saints fans be about Jameis Winston's foot? Because I remember when you, when this happened, this was a couple weeks ago. It was well, was it his foot? Was it his ankle? Did he roll it? Did he sprain it? And now that we know that he's probably not playing in this preseason game tonight, what is the outlook on the foot and how long that could potentially keep bothering him? Well, one thing I appreciate about Dennis Allen is he'll actually tell us what the injury is. Yes, I know he did describe Jameis Winston's injury as both a foot injury and an ankle injury, but, you know, that's okay. That's better than Sean Payton's no comment, so I appreciate that. Um, but all joking aside, I think there were positive signs this week. Winston did travel with them to Green Bay. He didn't practice, but he did do warm-ups one day, and then the next day he did walk-through. The Saints have been really big this summer on the ramp-up plan for all of their injured players. They all kind of follow the same progression. So for Winston to even be doing walkthrough on an injured foot, I think is a very good time. I don't know if he'll have enough time based on how they do things now to play in the preseason game next week, something I actually really think he needs to do. But I think that it's all kind of tracking upwards, which is a positive thing to see right now. We're talking to ESPN NFL Saints reporter Catherine Terrell on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin, and uh, Catherine, you just mentioned Dennis Allen. I'm always the first to admit as a lifelong diehard Raiders fan when I have my biases. I did not see the best of Dennis Allen in his time with the Raiders, but everybody seems to feel really good about him. You're around the organization. How different does it feel right now than it did when Sean Payton was running things? I don't think it feels overwhelmingly different, and I think that's what they wanted. I think part of the reason why they were so keen on Dennis Allen being their coach is they thought, hey, over the last decade plus, we've built something really good here. We know the structure now in place to win, and we think that Dennis Allen, who has been with the Saints forever, outside of the Oakland years, obviously, into one year in Denver, uh, he knows the system. He knows what it takes to win, or at least has learned under Sean Payton. And he basically kept the assistant staff the same. But a lot of this feels very much like when Payton was coached. Now, there are differences. I do feel like, as I said, they treat the injury progression differently. But I think that's more that they hired someone new this year uh, as the director of sports science. So they wanted to do new things conditioning-wise. I've seen Dennis Allen draw a hard line in the sand about practice fights, which is interesting. If a player fights in practice, he gets thrown out. And I don't know that I've ever really seen that before. So there are a few key differences. But overall, I think the Saints are kind of trying to follow what worked so well for them in the past. Yeah, try telling that to Trevor Penning. Um, seems like, <laughs> did he, I don't know if he got the message from those first couple practices. I think, about I think he did. <laughs> the other two fights weren't him, actually. Uh, I think he... He was the reason why they have now started this thing where if you fight, you get kicked out. But he had actually nothing to do with the last one. Uh, the last fight was Jarvis Landry getting kicked out. Uh, so it's kind of funny. I think we haven't seen a lot of Trevor Penning fights in, I don't, I don't know, preseason maybe? But I do think he's 
kind of tamed it down ever since he and Malcolm Roach got thrown out a few weeks ago. Catherine, about a minute left here. Uh, we know that Alvin Kamara has the felony battery charges that still hang over him. The NFL saying there's real no change, no real change to his status at this point. He's still under review with the personal conduct policy. His play on the field, though, what are the expectations for him in kind of bouncing back this season after a lackluster 2021? Well, I've talked to Jameis Winston and Jameis Winston's quarterback coach about trying to be better at the, his intermediate accuracy. And the reason why that's important is because Kamara's stats dropped the last two years once Breeze wasn't really playing. And Breeze loves that kind of thing, you know, jumping off to the running back, things like that. And so they want to make that more of an emphasis. I think if Kamara stays healthy and they find the right guy to pair him with, which might be Mark Ingram if he's, you know, hasn't, I guess, magically gone over the hill at age 32. You know how it can be with running backs. Uh, I think Kamara can have a very good season. I mean, I definitely would expect a bounce back year from him this year. Catherine, we appreciate your time, especially on a really busy night. Enjoy the preseason, if that's even humanly possible. Just enjoy the ambiance. We appreciate your expertise. Thanks for hanging out. Uh, Thanks for having me on, y'all. It's Catherine Terrell. You can check her out, uh, covering all things Saints and you know, Courtney, I think it's always enlightening, and I would say this the same when we talk to you about the Bears. When you talk to the people that follow this team every day about what to look for in preseason games, it's a really good indication of, hey, this is the one thing. So when she goes to offensive line, yep. I just immediately think there are so many teams in the NFL. We spent years talking about the lack of qualified quarterbacks in the NFL. Now I wonder if we should be having that same conversation about the lack of qualified offensive linemen. Oh, I mean, especially at this time of year when you realize what your depth looks like and just how little you have. Every team that struggles with their offensive linemen, whether it's pass protection, whether it's just a sheer numbers game, whether it's experience, you usually get weeded out at this point of the preseason. I mean, you're seeing it with the Giants right now, uh, down to like their fifth string center, if that's even a thing. And I know what Catherine's talking about just with some of the injuries they've had up front on this offensive line. It's a real big problem. Uh, for this offense, this new-look offense now that Sean Payton's gone and Drew Brees is not there. So, yeah, it's uh, certainly a concern, as you could hear from Catherine. Change makes me nervous because I'm ever the fan of proof of concept. Speaking of proof of concept, the Saints are playing a team that has one player that has better proof of concept than anybody in the NFL. We'll talk to an expert about it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin and Jason Fitz. Everybody tweet nice things to Sarah. It was her birthday yesterday, so tweet Sarah Spain something nice. Make sure you say happy birthday. I sang her happy birthday briefly yesterday to try and welch on a bunch of bets, payoffs, but turns out that doesn't work. At least I, I tried. All right, uh, we're going to get you insight. We talked about one side of tonight's Saints-Packers matchup, but there's another side of it. Never a question about Aaron Rodgers. He's been in the zone for the last two years. Getting the zone brought to you by AutoZone. Getting the zone, AutoZone. But will the Packers be in the zone? For that, we'll get some expertise from Matt Schneidman. Covers the Packers for the Athletic. Matt, thanks for the time, man. Appreciate you hanging out with us. Uh, So we all heard and everybody talked about the comments that Aaron Rodgers made about receivers needing to be a little bit more detail-oriented. What was your takeaway from what he said? It seems like a yearly thing where he – publicly through the media calls out his receivers because he needs more from them. He did it a couple of years ago uh, back when Marquez Valdez Scantling, among others, 
we're not putting in enough effort in, in Rogers' perspective. I, I don't think there's too much to it. Um, he knows the, the season opener in Minnesota is less than three weeks away, and he's going to have to rely on some of these rookies like Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs and possibly even Samori Toure. Um, and, and he isn't getting what he needs from them right now. The, the main thing he said is there's just too many mental errors, not only dropping balls, but running wrong routes, uh, not picking up blitzes properly. And he really needed more from them. And that's why when on Wednesday morning he came into the facility, Jason Vrabel, their wide receivers coach, had organized a meeting uh, between the three quarterbacks, all the receivers, and some of the offensive coaches where Rodgers took the lead in the meeting and kind of explained to them this is the standard we have for wide receivers in Green Bay here. We've had a lot of legendary wide receivers around here, and you guys need to, to pick it up. I don't think it was a angry or demeaning uh, tone, but just listen – we don't have much time before these games count, and we need more. Does this approach work, though, Matt? I know you had mentioned, you know, with MVS before, and, you know, that's a group that had Equinemius St. Brown, guys that aren't on the team anymore. Um, mm-hmm. When they Did this light a fire under his strategy, light a fire under guys previously, and can we expect that to pay off when this is kind of a divided room when you do have the likes of Randall Cobb and, and Alan Lazard and, and Sammy Watkins? Like, he didn't call out those guys. He was calling out the young guys. Like, do we anticipate this dividing the room? or actually galvanizing these young guys to get it together? I think it would be more of the latter. Uh, when we spoke to Samori Toure again, who's their, who's their seventh-run rookie receiver from Nebraska, he said, listen, it's one thing when coaches say the same things over and over, but it's another thing when you hear it directly from Aaron Rodgers. And, and he said, us young receivers, we took it to heart. And what do you know? They came out and played a lot better on Wednesday in the joint practice against the Saints. This quote-unquote rant or whatever you want to call it, the the maybe plea for uh, more uptight play from Rodgers was after practice on Tuesday when the offense got totally dominated by the Saints' defense. They didn't do much better on Wednesday, but those young receivers, Dobbs, uh, Toure, Jawan Winfrey is another one who, who is on the border to make this team, responded and played well. So Jordan Love did say, you know, he thought those guys had a better day. Randall Cobb said... He saw some of those young receivers respond well. And Randall Cobb has the clip that's going a little viral on Twitter right now where he said, it doesn't matter if guys don't take well to Aaron's way of leadership. If they can't catch the ball, if they can't do the things that he's asking, they won't be in the room. And that's all that matters. Because whether you like it or not, if you're a player or a fan, the way Rodgers leads, like he needs to trust the guys he's throwing the ball to. And I don't know if there are many of those guys in that receiver room uh, outside of Lazard and Cobb, and maybe Sammy Watkins isn't even there yet, given how limited his experience is with number 12. So, Matt, I keep thinking about Aaron Rodgers and the fact that as we watch the Packers every year, they sort of dam- dominate the division, everything's fine, and there seems to be a presumption that they'll do so again. Uh, you see this team every day. Should we be more concerned about the Packers than we are? I don't think so, because for the amount of – regressions if you want to call it that that this offense might take especially to start the season um their defense has improved just as much uh they have a healthy jair alexander a rasul douglas with a full year under his belt uh eric stokes with his with a promising rookie year under his belt they have a second pretty solid inside linebacker with quay walker the number 22 overall pick from georgia and much better defensive line depth they added jaron reed who 
uh, longtime former Seahawk, played for the Chiefs last year, has been really, really good in camp. So I think they're a deeper team on defense. They don't really have a weakness at any position. So, listen, the offensive side, I would not be surprised if they struggle out of the gate the first couple of weeks, especially if they don't have you know, their five-time all-pro left tackle and David Bakhtiari, who still isn't practicing. And we don't know how soon uh, second-round receiver Christian Watson and tight end Robert Tunyon are going to be playing either. They, they recently came off the pup list. So I think it balances out. I still think the Packers should be the favorites in the division with the Vikings a close second. But, you know, for as many growing pains as there might be on offense, I think the defense is equipped this year, on paper at least, to compensate for those. Let's talk about that offensive line. I know you had mentioned David Bakhtiari and the unknown timetable. Elkton Jenkins just got cleared to come back, though. Uh, And this was a unit last year that took a beating, and the offense was still able to perform probably because of who they had under center. But is there a concern level with this group up front that given Rodgers' age and where he's at in his career and just the unknowns with the left tackle spot for really a couple of years now because of David Bakhtiari's injuries, that that could end up being more of a problem than we anticipate? Absolutely. I mean, the O-line has not been great in camp. They, I, I could even go as far to say they haven't been good. They, they played decent against the Saints the two days, and the Saints have one of the better defensive fronts in the league. They looked all right. Uh, like you said, Courtney, they have a quarterback who can compensate for a bad offensive line, but he can only compensate so much. Uh, we don't know if Elton Jenkins is going to be ready for week one. He's one of the best offensive linemen in the league, was a Pro Bowl starter in his second year in the league back in 2020, and then tore his ACL in week 11 uh, last year, returned to practice less than nine months later. So it looks promising that he might play in Minnesota in a couple weeks, but we don't know for sure. The big question is Bakhtiari. He changes everything because that's your blindside protector. That's your five-time All-Pro. He tore his ACL on New Year's Eve in 2020 and still is not back. It's not necessarily the ACL that's still holding him back. It's more – collateral damage from that injury other stuff in the knee but that's definitely a concern and if he's out that means the Packers have to put a guy at left tackle who's may not be starter ready and if Jenkins is out then that just doubles down on the pain so they have a really young offensive line the past couple of years to make up for that they've had a veteran swing tackle come in like a Billy Turner or a Rick Wagner or you know anyone else but it's young guys this year and they haven't looked great and they're going to need to uh, pick that up. If, if the Packers want to block is it Smith and Daniel Hunter here in a couple of weeks? I know you praised the defense earlier, but I mean, I just keep thinking we're having a conversation about problems at wide receiver. We're having a conversation about the limited offensive line. And I mean, we're talking about an organization that at this point blew a first round draft pick on Jordan love. That's never going to see the field. Has, has Gutekunst done a good enough job? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, listen, that Jordan Love pick will always be questioned until he is a good quarterback for the Packers. And that day may never come. So uh, I think other than that, he's been really good. I mean, I understand that postseason success obviously hasn't been there. And that's the ultimate measurement of the success of a team. But top to bottom, they have... I would say one of the most complete rosters in the NFL. Probably not the most complete, but Their defense, as I said, is is stacked top to bottom. Their offense leaves a little bit to be desired, but that's not because of, you know, who they have. It's because of who's injured, especially on the offensive line. And, yes, they traded Devontae Adams, but I think uh, 
if Romeo Dobbs and Christian Watson turn out to be something, if Sammy Watkins turns out to be something, then all of a sudden Brian Gutekunst is a genius. But if Christian Watson and Romeo Dobbs take a while to develop and Sammy Watkins gets injured again or doesn't produce, then it's a little bit of a different story that Brian Gutekunst perhaps didn't do enough to surround Aaron Rodgers in the post-Devontae Adams era. I think he's done a really good job, um, but I guess we'll see. That's the beauty of the NFL. You never know until some of these young guys and free agent acquisitions actually play in games that matter. Well, Matt, I know you always do a really good job. Love reading you on The Athletic. Thanks for hanging out with us. We appreciate you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. That's Matt Schneidman. Check him out covering the Packers for The Athletic. And uh, it's going to be interesting because all eyes will be on how this offense looks, especially without Devontae. Tune in to the AL East rivalry tomorrow as the Yankees host the Blue Jays, presented by Progressive Insurance. Coverage begins at 12.30 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Coming up, we got to get to some college football news. The Big Ten just made a whole lot of money, but what's it mean? We'll break it down next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I mean, the cash that's coming out on college football right now is insane. And what's crazy about it is I can't always figure out the hows and the whys. We know from TV ratings that the second most popular sport in America is college football. But we also study the metrics. You hear shows talk about it all the time on radio. Talk about college football half the time, people don't care. It's a regional sport. Which is it? I don't know, but I know it's $7 billion. The Big Ten just got an answer. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XN, Channel 80. Courtney Cronin in for Sarah, and I'm Jason Fitz. And Courtney, I mean, $7 billion when you're talking about that kind of money for the Big Ten, it tells you what's at stake on Saturdays. And, and when you think about what this means for CBS that was going to overspend to make sure they didn't lose a 3.30 p.m. game, and for NBC wanting this, and, and the opportunity to advertise the other shows on your network for hours, I mean, the TV money on college football absolutely goes to another level with the Big Ten signing this huge deal. Yeah, I mean, it's insane. That's that's These are numbers that we never thought we'd see with college football. I mean, these are NFL-style deals, and a seven-year media rights agreement with CBS, Fox, and NBC is crazy to think about just the magnitude of something like that and what this is going to entail as far as world domination, which is what it feels like Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren is out for with the Big Ten brand. That This is why I – mean, remember back in, like, Memorial Day – when we were waiting on this and it was like really quiet because it's like, why have, why has the big 10 media rights deal not been announced yet? And of course we find out about two months later that the USC UCLA thing probably had something to do with the delay there. And just what that did to strengthen the brand of the big 10. Well, this is a media rights deal that would reflect a conference that has arguably the strongest brand in college sports and I know that saying that it's kind of crazy when you think about what the what the SEC and, and the, our, the media rights deal it has with ESPN and just how how lucrative that deal is this feels like that blows a lot of that out of the water based on the brand recognition the teams and where these games are going to be shown yeah I, I think when you think about every ounce of brand it speaks to the change in college football like I'm the old guy in the room and I know that but uh, there's a funny moment to me where when I was a kid part of the reason Nebraska and Florida State Miami there were certain schools that were always popular and part of they the were always was, on TV exactly and now if you're a kid you can see if you're a kid playing football you can see any of these games any week anywhere any way and 
in that sense, I do think it's smart for the Big Ten to go out and say, hey, we're going to make our own home, our own path, on our own you know, opportunities over here, aside from everything that everybody else is doing. I, it, makes a lot of, it makes a lot of sense. This is what Andy Staples from The Athletic had to say about his initial reaction to the deal and the comparison to TV deals of old. This is about where we thought it was going, but it's still hard to, to wrap your brain around the actual numbers. Uh, I, I was hosting a radio show, and the producer sent me a story from the New York Times. It was about the NCAA television football deal that was signed in 1981, which it was like $66 million a year for the entirety of college football on television. And like, if you break this deal out, the networks are paying like an average of $24 million a game. That's crazy. Wow. $24 million a game. That speaks – and networks aren't stupid, right? So, you know, contrary to popular belief, uh, networks do whatever makes them money. And this was an argument I had with some callers yesterday that were calling in about Deshaun Watson and the NFL and ESPN. It's like, hey, guess what? At the end of the day, all the NFL cares about, all college football cares about at that point, all the media partners care about is making money. So if you're willing to spend that much money, how much money are you making, right? Like there's this age-old story of, of NSYNC. I, I got a buddy that was in NSYNC, right? And there's a story that when they were on their 20th birthday or 21st birthday for one of them, they went into the casino, and I think it was for Timberlake, and they, he put down $100,000 on one casino on one roll of a roulette table, right? And this is like maybe it's an old wives' tale. I don't know. But the, the funny thing I always ask is like how much do you have to be worth to be willing to bet $100,000 on one spin of a roulette wheel. Well, how much money are you pulling in as a network if you can suddenly, you know, just justify $25 million a game for every game? Like that's that just shows you incredible return on investment for the networks because they're not losing money. No, and they're more visible than they've ever been. Like when you think about the three networks that we talked about, CBS, Fox, and NBC, they're going to be games are going to be on. College football, Big 10 football is going to be on from noon until 11 p.m. that night. That is the most visibility that this conference has ever gotten. And what you and I have talked about off air, just with that 3.30 CBS slot, they did not want to give that one up. So whenever they, you know, their deal with the SEC started dwindling, they began focusing on this Big Ten deal. That's the most visible game on Saturday in college football outside of the night game, I think that that's fair to say. And so now that CBS has the Big Ten, which will eventually be coming to the 330 slot, I mean, those are the marquee matchups. You're going to be having a good game, so to speak, a marquee matchup every single Saturday, multiple times a day, which I think is the crazy thing to think about in terms of what the magnitude of the Big Ten means now versus where it's going. Because typically we see, what, like one game a week in the Big Ten? And, I, mm -hmm. and I'm not a Big Ten hater. Like, I went to a Big Ten school. I did not go to a football school. But um, it'd be like an Ohio State-Michigan, a Michigan-Michigan State. Maybe, I mean, give me some other names here that you think, okay, that's like your one you get every weekend. Whereas in the SEC, you might have three or four games that have – you know, playoff implications, things down the line, seeding in the East or the West. Now it feels like the script has been flipped and that the Big Ten is going for what the SEC had and then some. Yeah, and that's what's really interesting to me because if there are going to be three huge games on TV, I just pull up a random weekend uh, in October 
And what we're going to find out quickly is if the top game, let's say, in this weekend uh, coming up this season, might end up being Michigan State or Michigan versus Penn State. So if that gets put on at noon, well, that means Wisconsin, Michigan State's going to go on at 3:30, and eventually that night game is probably going to involve a USC team that's a top 10 team. So if I'm the Big Ten, I'm going to get a quick answer to who cares about what conference more. Like as much as you know, living in the South for 20 years, I am fully aware of the SEC, and it just means more. There's a real conversation about who's going to watch more of these games because we're going to have proof. Like there will be very substantial proof in the numbers on what conferences get the most eyeballs, what conferences are making the most money, what conferences have the most traction in college football. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the SEC began this dominance with college football back in 2006. Um, I don't, I mean, their, their deal, I mean, CBS has their deal with the SEC through 2023 and we're waiting, right? Like to figure out what the SEC media rights are going to be beyond the Big Ten. Like, is there any chance, knowing kind of just the landscape that you do, that the SEC's new deal will top? I mean, is this just going to be two super conferences battling back and forth for media rights from here on out? I think so. But what's really going to be interesting, and this is super in the weeds for y'all, but, like, uh, I host a college football show on Saturdays. And one of the things that on digital we know is we are literally not allowed to show the highlights of the 330 CBS game. It, it is not allowed. So when we do that game on our highlight pitch, all I can do is throw up a screen and show you, hey, here's the 330 game. Here's the score in it. I can't show you a single highlight. What's really going to become interesting is are we going to start segmenting these fans at a spot where certain highlights can be shown on certain networks, certain can't on other networks? This could really turn into a wild negotiation of fandom where you're essentially like we live now where the a I'm an AFC fan. So I watch CBS every stinking Sunday. If you're an NFC fan, you watch Fox every single Sunday. Mm -hmm. I think we've just seen the same thing happen in college football. It absolutely feels like that because of the size of the deal to start with. And we're going to start having, I guess, uh, network biases. Did you ever think that that would come to college football? Because I sure didn't. Oh, my God. Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance, a triple threat of protection with home, auto, and more. Visit Progressive.com. It's going to be wild to check out. Wild to check out is the Patriots. There's an update on the Patriots-Panthers game. We'll get you caught up on that. Plus the start of Saints-Packers coming up next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio. We've got a touchdown. That's it. Forget everything we said. All's cured. The Patriots are going to win the Super Bowl. I'm mocking myself. I'm joking. They aren't, but they did score. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, presented by Progressive Insurance. I'm Jason Fitz, hanging out with Courtney Cronin on this wonderful Friday edition. We now have a touchdown in the Patriots game. Patriots are up 7-3. to three. Mac Jones, 4 of 8 for 61 yards. No picks, no touchdowns. It's just sort of looked like it is. I don't know that there's much to say there. Handed off to Ty Montgomery, who gets a rushing score. And P.J. Walker, importantly, gets to start for the Panthers. And I don't think this is any big shock. I mean, just from the outset, that didn't look like that was going to be a glorious thing. But that's where they are, and it has nothing to do with the, what the regular season will look like. Spain and Fitz brought to you by Boost Mobile, a proud sponsor of the 2022 Department of Defense Warrior Games. With Boost Mobile, feel the power of more money in your pocket on one of America's largest 5G networks. Also, Department of Defense, not Department of Defense. You can tell I'm in full football mode, Courtney. 
P.J. Walker got start. Matt Corral now in. Uh, but all of this has nothing to do with the, but what the Panthers really expect to be facing this year at the quarterback position. No, and there's some initial reports that Baker Mayfield has already won the job and that we all expect you know, this thing to wager on. And Matt Rule has talked about using this Patriots game as potentially the like, – or knowing by the Patriots game or shortly thereafter who his starting quarterback is going to be. And – it's a weird thing. Like, I don't really understand the P.J. Walker gets the start, then Matt Corral, and then goes back to P.J., and then it's Matt Corral. Like, the every other quarter thing seems a little weird to me because, you know, you've got to keep your arm warm and you've got to make sure that you're in a rhythm. That feels like a very quick way to take guys out of a rhythm. But nonetheless, um, it's uh, – it's something that we have now seen this quarterback battle play out in Carolina between Baker Mayfield and Sam Darnold. And lo and behold, everything's trending towards the outcome we all expected when Baker Mayfield got traded there. Yeah. And I mean, look, this was the inevitability, but there still, I guess, has to be a process. I don't know that there has to be a process. It's just going to take a little time. I mean, this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, when I think about the way so often narratives are crafted around quarterbacks, you hear somebody say, well, look at what they did in the offseason, Courtney. They went to some random island and he threw with his wide receivers for three days and it's going to make the offense so much better. And then you turn around and say, well, he was traded right before training camp. But it's no big deal. He's going to have the whole offense down in a matter of no time. Like, I think it's natural to expect a bit of a learning curve. And the fact that Baker hasn't necessarily been named doesn't mean that he hasn't necessarily proven he will be the starter. It just means that you got to know more than 8% of the playbook before everybody turns around and anoints a guy, I would think. And for Matt, Matt Rule, too, I mean, this could potentially be his last year coaching in the NFL. I mean, this, this thing didn't exactly go as planned since he was hired and how the quarterback situation has played out with the Panthers is less than desirable considering everything that that franchise gave up to go get Sam Darnold and then picked up his fifth-year option right away. And if you're Dave Tepper, the owner of this team, you're probably growing pretty impatient. And at least that's what we heard the rumblings were last year when their season ended again in disappointment. So why rush the decision? I can understand from Matt Rule's perspective wanting to see this thing play out in training camp and wanting to see some preseason games, but we're not expecting to see either of those two, at least at least not right now, um, you know, get much action tonight, if at all. So I feel like the decision's probably already been made, but I can't fault him for it taking, you know, three weeks into August for the Carolina Panthers to come closer to figuring out how they're going to let this thing play out because jobs are on the line. Like, it's very clear if this team doesn't have some sort of marginal improvement from this past year, Matt Rule may be gone. He may already be gone. But, like, why would you end up – rushing that decision if you know that everything hedges on that decision well and the matt rule element of it is such an interesting part it's main and fits on espn radio by the way jason fitz courtney cronin hanging out with you and i i think about matt rule and i had a chance to hang out a little bit uh, down at baylor the when he was there and game day was there and it was interesting just to see the way he talked about, you know, culture and like so many college coaches do. But you could tell that for him, there's a real path to creating a culture that leads to winning. My first thought when he got hired at Carolina was that's an awesome concept in college. But do you mm -hmm. get the time to create like any time a, a coach comes in and day one, they're talking about creating a culture. It just makes me a little bit nervous because in concept, when you're coming from 
no proof of concept that you can win at this level, and now you're telling everybody to buy into this culture that you're creating. I just don't think it's that easy to win over a, you know, a room full of grown-ass men. Like I just think there has to be a little bit of a here's who we are in action before we speak to here's who we are in words, and I, I don't know that that's, he's ever going to have the time to create the culture that makes him a winner. I, I just th- That path feels wrong to me. Yeah, I mean, he, he's trying to create a culture when he just got a seven-year contract at the time that he was hired, so he right. at least had the benefit of the doubt of time to try to implement those things, but the reality of the situation is since Matt Rule has been hired, this team has not been very good. They've had a running back who was, you know, paid an exorbitant amount at his position who's been hurt the better part of the last two years. And now an offense that's trying to right the ship and hoping that it's not too late in order to do so. I think the the draft, the move that they made in the draft of Matt Corral might not be one that Matt Rule gets to see through because he might not be there by the time Matt Corral is ready to take over and play and, you know, There's a reason this team went out to get Baker Mayfield. They thought it was going to be an upgrade over Sam Darnold, and it very well could be, but you want to put him in every single position, every possible scenario for success to make sure that you can achieve success yourself as a head coach because he did walk in there, you know, with – with a lot of expectations, at least of what this team could become, but without any sort of proven results previously that that plan would work at the NFL level. You're right. We do see college people with college, college backgrounds, whether they come right out of college or whether they've had college experience in the past, trying to implement culture right away without having proven anything at the NFL level. Matt rule is a poster child for that, for all intents and purposes. And, And so far it hasn't panned out, but you'd like to think that, the way that this thing has gone with their quarterback competition and getting Baker Mayfield in the fold and giving him the time to learn the offense and win over this locker room has actually worked in the favor of both the quarterback and the head coach. You've been around teams for so many years. When you see a coaching staff sort of grasping at straws to figure out a quarterback situation, it just feels like that never works, right? Like that's the the last ditch. You're you're trying to get the buckets to get the water out of the sinking ship, and it feels like the ship is probably already sunk by then. So, that I think that's one of the hardest parts of this. Like I would love to see a world uh, of redemption for Baker Mayfield where he comes in and he just plays his tail off, and everybody says, "Yeah, that's it." But more realistic is that this team's going to figure out early on they're not very good, and then decide that they'd rather get into the quarterback market for next year if they can. And that that just is a once you're into that spiral, I don't know how you get out. No, it's difficult, and it usually means the writing is on the wall, and the, that time is ticking very quickly on the pre, on the current staff before the new staff would come in and have to inherit the problems of the last staff, but have the benefit of the doubt to do over and undo a lot of those mistakes, which sometimes costs you a lot of money, and it costs you rearranging the roster, and it costs you where you what you want to do in the NFL draft, all those things. And, you know, the Panthers have not had success and sustained success in a long time. So whether, you know, the quarterback spot, it's it's the one that you have to get right. And so few teams can actually boast, hey, we got this right on the first try. We got this right with whatever player we brought in, whether it was a draft pick that they anticipated being the future of this franchise, whether it was somebody they were giving a second chance to, like they are with Baker Mayfield. It's difficult to expect that those things are going to pan out the way you expect when you've already seen what the results have been previously elsewhere. Yeah, well, there's there's some moment uh, where you got to look at this and say there's so much on the line. You hope that desperation uh, creates great result and the pressure creates diamonds. I just think, unfortunately, 
That's not the the, uh, the case for this Carolina team this year. We'll continue to keep you updated on the game, obviously. But coming up, only one game last night, a battle of the bad in Seattle, maybe? Or maybe massive hope for Sarah and the Bears. We'll break it down next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin, presented by Progressive Insurance. Tune in to an AL East rivalry Sunday. The Orioles battle the Red Sox live from Williamsport. Coverage of Sunday night baseball begins at 6 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And at 7 p.m. on ESPN. Sarah Spain is the world's biggest Bears fan. Uh, There's no doubt about it. You know, usually uh, I have to sort of mince my, uh, watch my words a little bit when when I say something negative about the Bears. So I got Sarah. But she is on a birthday vacation. So, Courtney, this is the perfect time, as you are uh, the reporter extraordinaire that covers the Bears, to break down yesterday's uh, huge win for the Bears of the Seahawks, 27 last night, uh, 27-11 last night. We can break it down with the full honesty that comes. Are the Bears going to be any good? You know, there are positive signs that you can take away from the preseason game last night for a team that is not expected to be anywhere close to contention. Like, I think you have to look at it through a realistic lens that there's a lot of good in the way that they played, in the way that they executed, in the way that they hustled, which I know I sound like I'm regurgitating coach speak, but when you inherit a team that you have to rip to the studs because of the direction that you're going in, certain players, certain fits just don't work, you're not expecting things other than what does – like. Success does not look like anything other than improvement in in big areas. And that, to me, is what you take away from the Chicago Bears, you know, throughout the preseason and throughout the 2022 season. It might end up being six wins, but is there belief and proof within that belief that this team can be in a better spot in 2023? That's what they're hoping for, which I know I didn't even answer your question if they're going to be any good. Um, and what we take away from this preseason game, I think it, you, there's parts of the operation that looked pretty darn good yesterday for where the Bears were a, like you know months ago and where they are now. I, I think you make an important point, and I say this a lot for fans of a bad team, because usually I'm a fan of a bad team, right? So I I remind people uh, that I live that year in and year out, that this seems to be the exception, but I'll believe it when I actually see it, because uh, I I usually get my heart ripped out for the Raiders. But I will say, Courtney, so much of where hope comes from comes from competence. And like Mm -hmm. as simple as that sounds, when you see a quarterback that seems to be executing and you believe that, hey, that quarterback can, can be the guy, and then when you start to believe that, hey, maybe this coach has everybody going in the right direction, uh, sometimes it's not about a worst-to-first leap that so many people talk about. Sometimes I think it's just about realizing maybe for once the right bodies are in the building in a way that you can band together and say things are about to get better. And that's a real part mm-hmm. of the progress. I, I think if Chicago comes out and looks like they're executing well and they look like they're a disciplined football team that that's playing hard and you find out that Justin Fields is as good as I thought he would be on draft day, man, if you're a Bears fan, doesn't matter if you win six games or nine games in that process, just figure out that you've got your building blocks. Yeah, because if you don't and you're back to the drawing board, then it sets the process of competing and contending back even further. And I know that there's kind of this, of course, like, you know, I, I feel for this fan base because – 
every new regime in Chicago that's taken over has inherited the last regime's mistakes. And, and with that, you have to undo a lot of that before you even get to like level playing field to start building. So there's this, there's this belief by some like, okay, take it on the chin this year, learn a lot, build, and then contend in 2023, you know, a one-year turnaround, I know everybody wants to follow the Bengals model here, is so rare. Like, that just does, isn't it? It's just not a thing that's replicated all that all that often, and it's not easy to do by any stretch. So to anticipate that the Bears will get it right and they'll be in the going in the right direction in 2023, I mean, there's still a lot of talent deficiencies around Justin Fields and, and, and elsewhere, too. Are we really expecting, okay, if this year's not great, draft positioning, all of that, free agency, yeah, they can make some big moves next year, but will it be enough to make this team a contender in a down NFC at the moment? Maybe, maybe not. But I think what this team wants is to find out every day that they go out there for a game, is Justin Fields equipped to be this franchise quarterback? And you're not going to know that answer realistically this year because they didn't put him in position adequately to make to ins- to ensue that you would know that. And so that's the tough part that I think is going to make for a long season if they do get into losing skids because you're trying to figure out the answer on the most important position on the team and you're just not going to know it after this year. Well, and there is some element of this entire process for the Bears that I have to look at and say organizationally, right? Mm-hmm. Like I I I felt like when the Jags drafted Trevor Lawrence that they would fail Trevor Lawrence before Trevor Lawrence would fail them. Trevor Lawrence was as close to a can't-miss prospect as you can have. When you think about Justin Fields, I won't say can't-miss, but I think that a lot of people really felt like Justin Fields had the capability to be very good. But in order to do that, like we have to acknowledge at some point that this is a quarterback now learning a new offense, like we talked about earlier, that's going to have new coaching, like we talked about with other teams earlier. These are all things that will impact the the rate which you grow. I mean, you can't expect somebody to walk into year two as a pro and be every bit as good of themselves, as much of themselves as they possibly could be if you've made every stumbling block along the way even tougher. Yeah, and I, that's the thing about this offense that, to me was a very positive sign last night because the offensive line is still in flux in the pass protection, albeit in 10, in, you know, in 10 snaps or 10 plays that we saw from the offense, you can't really glean all that much from that, but it didn't look super great. So what did they do? They rolled him away from pressure. There were a lot of play action uh, and bootlegs and, you know, nakeds and all things like that, 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 you know, that, that takes you away from pressure. That is what this Shanahan scheme is that Luke Getze, you know, ran a, they ran a version of it in Green Bay where he came from. He was Aaron Rodgers quarterback's coach and the passing game coordinator, and they're implementing that here in Chicago. So what it, I looked up this incredible stat that our, our Stats and Info group had last night. Two of his pass attempts, fields that is, were on a design rollout last night. He had 18 pass attempts on design rollouts last season. He was getting into a drop-back game, and that's the reason that he was really struggling because behind the pass protection he had in front of him, he, he knew he was probably doomed. And that's tough to put a rookie quarterback in that situation. Now you're asking that rookie quarterback – in many ways to unlearn some of the habits that he picked up last year in that system and now having to now putting him in a situation where he can succeed 
that's that's a lot of it's going to rest in the shoulders of Luke Getze and figuring out okay how can we get this guy in the best situation get him out on the perimeter be you know do use the things that make him a great quarterback let him use his athleticism let his let him, let him use his legs let him throw on the run and we saw glimpses of that last night it's not a polished product by any stretch trust me I go to training camp every day it's not pretty some days but um some some positive signs that at least that part is trending in the right direction, that that can help the growth of Justin Fields coming in year two. All I want from any coaching staff, and I don't care what team you're talking about, I look at coaches like chefs, and I want great coaches to, to feel like they're on chopped. I want them to open the basket of ingredients, and maybe some of them suck, and maybe some of them are great. I want them to look at that basket and say, what amazing thing can I create with this? And unfortunately, so so often, I think coaches come in as chefs that are stuck in exactly the way they do things and exactly what they want to do it. Instead of looking at the ingredients they have and saying, how do I cook with this in a way that will make everybody successful? And that is one of the hardest things. Every time I see a player not succeed, I wonder, is it on the player or is it on the fact that the coaches were trying to change who they are? Hopefully through all of the changes that have gone on around Justin Fields, the current staff will figure out how to maximize who he is as a player to make him as great as so many of us thought he could be. All right, we talked a lot about this uh, this game, obviously, but the defending champions will take the field later we'll, uh, tonight. We'll preview their game and, of course, their season next. Spain and Fitz hanging out with you on ESPN Radio and, as always, on the ESPN app. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app. Just once in my life, I hope to know what it feels like as a fan to head into the preseason after a Super Bowl win, knowing that everything you do is probably right because you're the Super Bowl champion. That's what it feels like to be a Rams fan right now. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80, Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin. Courtney, I can't imagine. I've spent too many years just sitting around. They could, oh, my God, we have 52 things we have to work on. If you're a Super Bowl champion, do you work on anything in the preseason? You work on making sure your depth is is right and that your uh-huh. roster is capable of doing what it did the year before, which I think the Rams certainly put themselves in position for with their wide receiver core and, and some of the additions they've made on defense. Yeah, well, we're going to talk to one of our favorite experts now, Sarah Barshop, ESPN NFL Rams reporter. Sarah what has if you look at the Rams right now and you have to say, man, this is the glaring weakness they're trying to address? What is it? It's got to be running back, and that's really just due to injury. Now, right now, Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson are both dealing with soft tissue injuries, and their third round pick, or sorry, their their third back, Kyron Williams from Notre Dame, broke his foot during OTAs and was on club to start the training camp and is now back, but isn't practicing and isn't playing tonight. So it gets to the point where you kind of look around and say, are these going to be guys going to be healthy enough to make it through the season? On the note of health, we talked about Matthew Stafford and his elbow and that, you know, early diagnosis was that with Matt, we've never seen something like this before. It's a baseball injury, but was that, I don't want to use the word overblown by the coaching staff, but it seems like everything's fine now because he's been back in, you know, they're not in Irvine anymore and he's been throwing a little bit. How has he looked to you and how do you think this, this shapes up for the prognosis for him going into the season? Now, I didn't get to watch him up close last year, but in practice, I mean, you can't tell that he's dealing with elbow soreness. And I think that's the point because last year he dealt with his soreness too. And yeah, I'm sure he was would rather not be in pain, but he and Sean McVay have said over and over, he's fine, he'll play. I mean, Sean McVay said he's the Matthew I know when I'm watching him at practice. 
So I don't think it was overblown. I think it is something he's dealing with, and he is dealing with that elbow soreness. But I also think he's played through injuries in Detroit. He played through injuries last year. And my guess is he will play through injuries again this year. And so no elbow soreness is going to stop him from being out on that field for week one. If there is any issue with him going into the season, is it something that they just adjust to with play calling? I mean, are they going to just be wide open from day one? Sean McVay said that's not the case. He said, you know, once we get into week one and the practice, you know, the the regular season practice schedule, he said we'll probably adjust it again too. He doesn't need to be throwing every single day as maybe a repeat quarterback would. But he said that also just comes with being in an offense that you know well and you're a veteran and you've done this before. So I think they're not letting their brains maybe go right there because they believe it's just a pain management issue. Um, but certainly John Wolford, their backup quarterback, is playing today. He didn't play – in the preseason opener, he's playing in the first half today. So it wouldn't surprise me if they just want a good look at him to see, okay, well, if it is worst-case scenario when the Stafford's out for a game or multiple games, you know, who else do we have on this roster? So we're not expecting to see starters tonight much, if at all, because Sean McVay has that philosophy. And, yeah, this team just coming off of the Super Bowl. So I'm wondering, when we look further down the depth chart, guys who are climbing, especially at that receiver position, how much of an impact has Tutu Atwell made, the former second-year receiver? Um, I know that Van Jefferson's been out. Has he gotten those reps in training camp, and could he potentially crack the roster with one of those, one of those maybe the fourth or fifth receiver spot because of that? So he's gotten the reps during camp, and he's we, we expected to see him play. I would say among the media corps, we thought he played in the preseason opener against the Chargers, and he didn't play. And after the game, you know, we asked Sean McVay, why wasn't he out there? You know, you had said you were looking forward to watching him play. And he said, you know, he's going to have a big role in this team, especially with what has happened to Van Jefferson. Like, we need to protect the health of these guys. And so he didn't even play, and he said he doesn't expect to see him play this preseason, which tells you that Sean McVay believes he's locked up a roster spot and is going to have a role on this team, which I don't know that going into the off season, if you look at the receiver core, that's what you would have thought. Oh, he's, you know, he's not even going to play in the preseason, but that's the case now. We're talking to Sarah Barshop, ESPN NFL Rams reporter on Spain and Fitz, Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you. Uh, what's the weakness on the defensive side of the ball, Sarah? Man, it, it's hard to say that there is one, I guess it's losing Von Miller. Right. And, and it's not just, his presence on the field, a lot of guys have talked about just his leadership and his presence in the locker room. However, they replaced him not obviously exactly play differently, but with Bobby Wagner. And he's got that leadership role. And a lot of guys have talked about how, not that he fills the, the void that Von Miller left, but that he has stepped into that role and they feel very strong in that aspect too. So I mean, you look at this, this defense with Aaron Donald not retiring and choosing to come back with Jalen Ramsey, you know, he had, off-season shoulder surgery, but we've been seeing him in practice now. And you see Bobby Wagner in the middle of the field. I mean, it's hard to look at this defense and say this is a glaring hole. And we know that Raheem Morris's scheme, I mean, it, it's gotten him head coaching interviews. He, he, he clearly is well-respected around the league. For someone like Bobby Wagner, what has he been saying about the role that he's expecting to play in this defense and how playing in the Rams – for the Rams is going to put him in a position to kind of get back to where he was when he was truly in his prime in Seattle. He's talked a little bit just how energized he is. I mean, he, a lot of players describe him as like this pocket of Zen almost in the middle of the field. And Raheem Morris has, you know, praised him and said that it, that rubs off on all the guys around him. 
And so Bobby Wagner said he's enjoying it. I mean, he said he just, it's fun to be around a new set of guys, you know, a challenge. Didn't say any, you know, hasn't talked negatively about Seattle and that defense, but I just think he's excited to be in this defense now and, and just a new challenge. We're talking to Sarah Barshop. So Sarah, it's never easy to repeat, and I don't want to take anything away from that, but it just feels like the NFC is is weak. Like we've talked on this show even tonight about some of the weaknesses from conference to conference versus the AFC. If you look at the NFC and just look on paper, is there a reason why the Rams shouldn't be the prohibitive favorite in your mind? No, I mean, it's really just the fact that it is so hard to repeat. Like you said, it just it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened in, what, 20 years? And so I think that's, you know, the reason that I would say, okay, maybe they're, that's not who I would put, you know, make betting favorites. But you look at this team and the, the players they brought back, they extend Matthew Stafford. They don't, you know, Aaron Donald doesn't retire. He's back. They extend Cooper Cup. You just look at this core and you just say, like, however the Rams built this team, they've done it in a way that it has extended the window. And so a, a big thing will be whether some of the, the younger guys on the roster, I mean, they've had to let guys go because you can't pay everyone. And, they drafted – they didn't have, um, you know, early draft picks. They didn't trade them away. But I just think when you look at this roster, the veteran presence and the core players that you have, it just and, – and any given Sunday when you look at who they match up against, especially, like you said, in the NFC, it just seems like they've got to be the favorites there. Sarah, you cover the Rams now, but for six seasons you did cover the Houston Texans. That's the team that the Rams host tonight during preseason game number two. Uh, you didn't leave there all that long ago, so I can still get away with asking you a Texans question. Is the storyline of this team, I don't think it's fair to say, can Davis Mills make the jump because they're still a team that is in a rebuild mode, a long rebuild mode. But what is the conversation around Davis Mills like when you left uh, earlier this offseason? I think it's just got to be, is he the quarterback of the future? Is he the franchise quarterback? And that matters, not just because, of course, you want to take the step forward, but it matters because they're going to probably have a high draft pick. They have two first-round picks this year, and they're going to have to make a decision. So Davis Mills has to blow them away this year on the field, I would think, for them to consider not taking a top quarterback in the draft, especially if they end up with either their pick or the Browns pick in the top five, top three. So I think it's just about evaluating him and figuring out if he is the quarterback in the future because you've got to make a decision, um, one that will affect the franchise for a very long time. So – they, you know, they're happy with what he did last year. They thought he started. Obviously, it was it was kind of a rough start, but the, the tail end of the season, they were impressed with how he improved. And now it's not just make the jump, but it's it's really evaluate him. Can this be our guy? As always, Sarah, we appreciate your expertise. Enjoy the game. Enjoy LA, and have a wonderful night, my friend. Thank you. Great talking to you guys, Sarah Barshop, ESPN NFL Rams reporter. I'm just saying, Courtney, like. I don't know there's a lot of beats that you could be happier to go from than to <laughs> than going from. Sarah's always nice. I've asked her about it. She never has a, a bad thing to say about the city of Houston, obviously, and the Texans. Great. But, I mean, you went from Houston and the Texans to L.A. and the Rams. I, I think that, that, that's a glow She up. leveled up. She did a great yeah. job with that. And I think for, you know, for all – like for the Houston Texans, too, I mean – 
you've got to think about everything that that franchise and some of it's certainly self-inflicted uh, has gone through the last like two years. They probably are thinking that 2022 is their fresh, like their fresh start because of everything that went down with Deshaun Watson, them settling lawsuits with 30 different women as of like a couple weeks ago that was completed. Like it's been, it's been a long couple of years for the Texans where the focus hasn't actually been on the on-field, like a good on-field product. I was actually having this conversation with somebody recently that that team coming out of the 2018 season, the team that should have won the AFC that year, it feels like that it's such a departure four years later, how quickly things can change. And the Texans, again, they're a long way from where they want to be and where they think they're going, but they're trying. I mean, Lovey Smith taking over – this season in his first year, I mean, you've got to, you've got to believe at least they're trying to put the right pieces in place to make this thing happen. Spain and Fitz presented by Progressive Insurance. If you're a renter, make sure you're protected. Renters insurance includes options that cover stolen property, personal injury, and living expenses. If your place is damaged, quote renters insurance at progressive.com. All right, we got to get you caught up on the action in Foxborough. What if I told you there's somebody in that stadium right now under more pressure than Mac Jones? There is We'll tell you who it is next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Series XM, Channel 80. Jason Fitz, Courtney Cronin, hanging out with you, getting you caught up on the game. The Patriots are up start of the second half on Carolina 10-3, to the only touchdown being a touchdown run, uh, obviously, as we talked about earlier in the game. Mac Jones finished 4-for-8. Four uh, 61 yards. Since then, we've seen Bailey Zappi and we've seen Brian Hoyer back on the field. So uh, Jones' night is done. I don't know that most people would say it looked like it was this uh, moment of ease or beauty, but it did result in a touchdown. So at least if you're the Patriots, we saw the first stab at getting the uh, starters on the field, Courtney, and it, it, it was okay. It was minimal. And that's exactly what you expect because of any team that's not going to give away what its plan for the offense is going to be and what that might look like and how the operation's going to look. Like, Bill Belichick doesn't want you to know any of that. So I'm not surprised that a 4-for-8, 61-yard stat line is what Mac Jones finishes with. But we'll see. I mean, if there's one preseason game left. I'm really curious to see how teams with these second-year quarterbacks, especially the ones that are not injured and playing right now, how they handle that because unless you think your guy's a finished product right now, getting those preseason reps to make sure the offense gets together and making sure the play-calling operation gets together seems like the New England Patriots could probably benefit from that. It's the, the constant double-edged sword we talk about in the preseason. Nobody wants injuries, but you also want to have a good football team when the season starts, especially in an AFC that is just stacked. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know that you can just bag on we'll get it figured out over the course of the season. Personally, I think you've got to have a little bit more mindset on coming into the year with some capability of just out of the gates being able to play well, especially considering this team, the, this Patriots team opens in Miami, then to Pittsburgh, then versus Baltimore, then to Green Bay. So you're talking about four tough games in a row to just sort of get your bearings. If, if your goal is just to walk in and, and figure it out, I don't know that it's going to be that that easy. But there's more important news than all of this. Uh, and, and, you know, fine. The Patriots, I don't think, are going to be a real threat in the AFC. They suck. Fine. Move on. The important thing here is theme songs, Courtney. All right. We, we have breaking theme song news. Are you ready for any of this? I am so ready. Okay. After now, seeing I'm... all these videos on TikTok. Right. And, and, and yeah, you can speak to this. Uh, so, apparently... The new Amazon theme song is—is—is is, is it the Amazon theme song that's a TikTok? Spent, uh, 
sensation? No, they have okay. not put that on on TikTok yet. I mean, we just heard it, and we're going to get ready to play it for you, the audience. Um, but I there's a video that's going around where there are these synchronized choreographed dances to all of the theme songs, and I believe that they get ranked in order of what the person dancing thinks is the best theme song to what they think is the fourth best theme song. And that goes from the NFL on Fox, on CBS, on NBC, and on the NFL Network. I actually don't – I haven't seen anybody dance to the Monday Night Football theme song, which I think is kind of tragic because it's a great one. Um, But it's – it's a really cool thing. I'm starting to see this trend take place, and there's some very creative dances, but they haven't done the Amazon theme song yet, which I kept asking, like, when is the Amazon theme song coming out? Do we know what it sounds like? And uh, we certainly do. All right. Well, let's uh, – I think we've got it here. I, I want uh, – let's start with the important thing. Can we play everybody a good theme song first? Can we Can we give everybody a reminder what a theme song is supposed to sound like? Yeah. Yeah. As Fitz told me, you've got to be able to hum it afterwards, verbatim, like remembering it for it to be a successful theme song, which I totally get because like you hear those first opening bars on the Monday Night Football theme song, you know what time it is, you know it's Monday night. And I don't know that Amazon necessarily achieved that with what they've got going on. Yeah, I mean... Think about this. That's Monday Night Football. If you just throw open the doors on Monday night and you go, pa 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 pom, the whole bar is going to be able to sing it with you, right? That's that's a theme song. Like, the NBA has done that for some of their theme songs. The NHL music does that. Like, you, you could just walk in and sing it. This is what Amazon's given us. I'm out. I'm out. It's trash. It's trash. It's like if Dateline and CBS World News Tonight and... Sunday Night Football had a baby. That's what you get out of this theme song. And it's too busy. There's too much stuff going on. Go back to Monday Night Football. Go back to Monday Night Football. Play the Monday Night Football for everybody. Simple. Everything's in unison going on. Everybody follows it. No, Amazon nailed none of this. None of this, Courtney. Like, look, I, I am a theme song snob. I will admit that. But I, I'm not. I'm not fired up for what I just heard. I mean, that, that, that that's it's bad. It's the bad. The thing. The thing about the other five is that everyone has a distinct sound, and you're not right. confusing the CBS, uh, the NFL, and CBS theme song with Fox. Like you're just not. And and that to me sounds like Amazon was trying to be like one of the other networks. And what I think was most closely to that would probably have been the NBC Sunday Night Football theme song. And you know, it's a new year for for Amazon trying this venture on Thursday Night Football. And, you know, the NFL Network has, has been in that spot, too. But they had chimes in theirs. So, like, I can't find anything wrong with the NFL Network's version of what they've played during their broadcast, whether it's those Saturday games late in the season or those early Thursday games. Um I've got a lot of issues with what Amazon has going on because it doesn't feel original. I don't think that th- that's a forgettable song. It feels replaceable. It feels yes. like next year they'll give us another theme, and the year after they'll give us another theme, and you just can't do that. Like, it, there, there, there has to be a mindset to this catchy thing, and that's why, frankly, guys that write theme songs and girls that write theme songs like this, uh, I mean, they make a lot of money to do it. Why? Because, frankly, it, you got to get something that catches somebody right away, and you got to make sure that when they catch somebody right away, that that's the sort of thing that they draw back to over and over and over again, an association. In fact, 
Association for Music, uh, some people may not know this, but when you hire certain composers to write your movie theme, uh, like your soundtrack for your movie, part of what you can get is portions of old soundtracks they've written that you can play in the theaters under the preview for your movie coming out. So, like, it's association. Subconsciously, you remember that you loved Hunt for Red October, and now you're going to love this uh, this movie because of the music that's associated with it. Like, you have the chance to create, like, a memory with it. Totally lost by Amazon. Yeah. I didn't know any of that, so thank you. I feel like I'm educated now. But (laughs) I'll say, I mean, why don't they just consult with you, Jason? Like, that's what Amazon needs to do. I got that email with the theme song in it. I forwarded it to you and our producer, Harry Black, when I think we should have just been replying all to the Amazon people that Jason Fitz is going to write their theme song for them. Or at least help them in the operation. It, it, it's uh, Amazon. It's preseason me for Amazon too, right? Just like the old excuse <laughs> that we use during preseason football games. Preseason for everybody. Amazon's going to turn around and be like, we don't want your help with our product, but we do need your help with our theme song. Uh, the actual composers of the theme song will be joining Freddie and Fitzsimmons next. Thanks for hanging out with me and Courtney. Have a great weekend. This has been Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.